Well, what a promise. I truly, I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain and it will move uh, from here to there. Nothing will be impossible for you. Uh, I read that earlier in the week in preparation for the day and my mind went immediately to that scene from The Empire Strikes Back. His faith that can move, well, not mountains, but X-wings, spaceships. Is that what Jesus is promising to his followers, that you can be a Jedi? Uh, you can do things that no normal human to do, move spaceships with the power of your mind. Uh, what would you do if you had such power? Would you just change the oil on your car? No, I think most of us want to do uh, so much more with that power, uh, even good things. Uh, I take it we'd want to do things like make pain go away or make money flow into our lives so that we don't have uh, the problems that we normally have, so we, uh, we want to succeed at every endeavour, that by the power of our belief we could manifest our own realities. Uh, and if you fail, is Jesus saying, well, that's only because of your lack of faith? Luke says, I don't believe. And like Yoda says, that is why you fail. That's certainly something that's promoted these days in the non-Christian world. It's, there are lots and lots of promotion of uh, an idea called The Secret. It's a book by Rhonda Byrne, uh, who wrote this book called The Secret. The secret to life and success is what's called the law of attraction. It's uh, found many different forms. It's out of Hinduism. It's, uh, it's basically that if you believe hard enough, you can bring success into your life just by believing it and receiving it. Uh, I was watching The Summit during the week, that uh, show where uh, it's a competition to climb a mountain for a million bucks. And uh, one of the contestants said, I've already visualised myself at the top and I know I've won. And then he got voted off the team. So <laughs> he thought, was it he didn't believe hard enough? Oprah believes that, right? That you manifest your own destiny by what you believe or not believe. And lots of Christian groups seem to teach that as well. Should we be able to? That, that seems to be what Jesus says, isn't it? And uh, we want to take Jesus seriously. Um, and if we're sceptical, is it only because we don't take him seriously? I mean, we're so used to putting on our scepticals. I love that phrase. Uh, we're used to putting on our scepticals. And, you know, we make, people make claims and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, good one. Uh, are we just putting on our scepticals in relation to Jesus? That's something foolish to do. I mean, we are at an Anglican church here today and wearing our scepticals is something we're very good at. We're very practised at it. But what if we're missing out on something wonderful, incredible? Jesus never said anything he didn't mean and what he says, he says with all the authority of God and there's no doubt that this passage is about faith and how powerful it is but just how powerful is it really? What is Jesus promising here? Do you want to know? Uh, I've been wrestling with it all week. And as we work through this incredible passage, we're going to see I, it's far more profound and life-changing than, than lifting X-wings. It's a promise that God is making you and me, whether you come today as a believer already or you're here trying to figure out things with God and you might receive it. And so are you ready to find out what it is? To figure it out, we've got to understand the situation 
that Jesus and the disciples were faced with, a situation that begins with the pleading of the father of a boy with a terrible problem. Uh, we don't want to disconnect Jesus' promise from what's happening around. Jesus, we saw last week, has been up on a mountain with three of his disciples and it was a spectacular time as we looked at that last week. Uh, Jesus transformed in glory and, and they heard the voice from heaven, the God the Father saying, this is my beloved son whom I well please, listen to him. But as a moment of transcendent glory, you know, you wish you could have been there, right? But as they come back down, the four of them, they're met by a crowd and the crowd's in a stir. And at the centre of a ruckus is a man with a terrible problem. It's in verse 14. When they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before Jesus. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son because... He has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I mean, what a terrible thing. Uh, you, you may know people who have epilepsy. Uh, most epileptic fits uh, really just last a few seconds uh, where, where people seem to switch off and then they're suddenly back with you and they don't know and you don't know. Uh, it's a bit like husbands, unfortunately, when they're uh, listening to their wives. But that's a different problem, right? And they shouldn't do that, right? And they can't blame it on a fit. Um, but, what that <laughs> but that's most seizures. But then there's grand mal seizures, which are the famous ones, the kind of fit that has someone on the floor shaking and thrashing uncontrollably. Pretty scary if you've ever had to witness it. I mean, you may have seen it in movies and so on. But in most cases, it's not dangerous except for the environment around you, you know, hitting your head on the corner of a table on something sharp and those kind of things. But in this case, it's more than just a normal grand mal seizure because these fits in this boy only come when the boy's life will be most threatened, when he's around fire and when he's around water. And who knows how many times this poor father has had to douse the flames from his son's clothes and treat his terrible burns. Who knows how many times he's had to dive into rivers to, to pull his son out and stop him from drowning. And as the incident goes on, we find out that the danger isn't just accidental or medical because Jesus says these seizures are caused by an evil spirit. And this spirit is malicious and intends to harm the boy and cause pain. Now, that's another thing in the Bible that people hear and then they put their skepticals on about, <laughs> right? We, we can tell ourselves, well, the people then, they were just poor, uneducated, and they put things down to demons that really we know better. And, um, but they weren't uneducated. And actually, they didn't put everything down to demons, and neither should we. Uh, they put some things down to demons and it's right to do. Demons are part of the spiritual realm that exists outside of the material world, which uh, Jesus, who is God, often spoke about. There are angels, demons, there's God and the devil. Uh, demon, I mean, if you accept that there is a God, then I take it you already know that the supernatural exists. And if the supernatural exists, why would we assume that everything in the supernatural realm is good and has our best interests at heart. 
Now, that's not to say that every disease or ailment or condition is caused by demons. Some are and some aren't. And Jesus could tell the difference somehow. So on some occasions, he healed people who were blind or deaf or crippled just because of the normal effects of life with disease and accidents and birth defects and other things like that. Uh, in Matthew 26, later on, he's going to heal a guy with a missing ear. But it wasn't a demon. It was because Peter cut it off with a sword, right? It was a, it was a deliberate blow by someone else. But Jesus also casts out demons from other people with similar problems, the blind and deaf and the crippled. And somehow Jesus knows the difference. So I want to say be careful not to blame demons for everything that goes wrong. That is something that, well, there are Christian groups very close to us, just down the road, in fact, that uh, are saying, right, that if you have an addiction, you have anxiety, that must be a demon and we can help you and cast it out of you. Feel free to ignore anyone that tells you that's the case. But also be careful not to dismiss the supernatural realm uh, and that demons are harmless myths who can't do anything. That's not true either. Right? They're the enemy and they can do real things. But let's come back to the passage and to this poor man who's pleading for such mercy from Jesus. Because there's something else that's compounding his desperation. It's in verse 16. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. And that's the second issue that we should see in here, the powerlessness of the disciples. Should they have been able to heal the boy? Should they have been able to cast out the demon? Was the man's faith in them misplaced? The, certainly, the disciples certainly think they should have been able to help. You see that in verse 19. The disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? I mean, they're genuinely surprised at their inability to do it. And, and actually, if we go back in Matthew's gospel, we find out that they had every right to be surprised. How do I get this to work? Uh, I've got to flick that on. Uh, in chapter 10... Um, Jesus has gathered the group of them together, all the guys that he's talking about here, plus the three that went up on the mountain, and have a look at what happened. Summoning the 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. And, and just to be sure, they have heard it right and that we've understood what he's empowering them to do. Just, just seven verses later, verse seven, as you go, proclaim... The kingdom of heaven has come near, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. And we've even got reports uh, of them doing all of those things scattered throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts. So it seems like this man has gone to the right people, but they have failed him. What's gone wrong? Well, they're just as curious as we are. Actually, we need to know the answer because it's right at the heart of the incredible promise that Jesus is going to make about moving mountains that we're trying to work out. And Jesus makes it clear that it's all to do with this issue of faith, or, or rather, their lack of it. But what does that mean? Is it like Luke Skywalker? He didn't really believe he could do it, and so when he tried, he failed. 
is it just of a case of Yoda being right? Do or do not, there is no try. <laughs> Did the disciples just need to believe a bit stronger in themselves like Luke Skywalker? And is that what we need to do in order to move mountains? Just believe in yourself and you can do anything. That sounds much more like Anthony Robbins or Rhonda Byrne or Oprah Winfrey than the Lord Jesus. So what does he mean? Well, did you notice the weird bit in verse 17? Before the disciples come to Jesus to ask what went wrong, in fact, even before the boy has been healed, there is this strange outburst from Jesus. The man's come pleading for help. He's grieved. I mean, he's a, a man in desperate grief, grieved by the awful situation that his son faces, grieved even more because the people who should have been able to help can't. And look what Jesus says. He replied, verse 17, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? That doesn't seem like a good bedside manner. <laughs> you, don't, you don't get that in the counselling manuals that you, you train in. Yeah, you don't get a whole lot of glimpses into the very heart of Jesus like that, do you? What, what would you call that? I, I'd say he's totally, what, frustrated. How long will I be with you? How long is this going to last? How long will I bear with you? We're really seeing the pain and frustration of Jesus' heart. But who is it aimed at? Notice who he's venting his frustration about. Oh, faithless and perverse generation. I mean, it's everyone. At least everyone at the time who's around. It's the crowds. I mean... They're just thrill-seeking. They're, they're here for the show, not because they really have faith in Jesus. It's the scribes and the Pharisees who've been constantly in those crowds, gloating, poo-pooing, denouncing. I mean, right now, they're probably having a good old chuckle. Uh, look, they failed again. <laughs> um, the, it's the father struggling with faith because he seems to have put his trust in the wrong place and he's doubting himself and them and... It's the disciples who fail to exercise the faith they need to heal the boy, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Now, it's almost identical to what Moses said, actually. It's, it's almost a direct quote from Moses. When Moses was standing on the edge of the promised land for the second time, 40 years after he stood in the same place before, when they could have gone in, but they had failed failed to have faith, failed to trust God's promises. Uh, I mean, have a look here. It is on the screen. Here's Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 19. When the Lord saw the situation, he despised them, angered by his sons and daughters. He said, I will hide my face from them. I will, I will see what will become of them, for they are a perverse generation, unfaithful children, faithless perverse why did god call them that well because they wouldn't listen to him when he made the promise the first time around 40 years ago god said be strong and courageous i will be with you go get them the land's yours 
And what did they do? They looked at their puny muscles. <laughs> they looked at the giants in the land and said, they're going to thump it. We look like ants in their eyes. <laughs> they looked at the size of their army and the size of that army and they went, no way, Jose. <laughs> and they squandered the moment. And they all died in the desert over the next 40 years. And so Moses is warning their children as they stand in the same place as their fathers. I mean, here is Jesus now, who is far greater than Moses. Come, he says, to rescue his people from a far greater enemy than foreign armies. Come, he says, to rescue people from sin and judgment. Come to bring them peace with God and guarantee eternity with him. And what is he met with? The perversity of unbelief. And so Jesus calls that moment in their shared history back to mind, quoting Moses before demonstrating exactly who he is and that he is more than capable of doing anything that needs doing. So verse 18, then Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and from that moment the boy was healed. What a moment. What a relief for this poor boy and his dad. Instantly gone, fully healed, demon banished, saved from his slavery to Satan and brought into the freedom of God. Praise God. Which brings us then back to what Jesus says about the power of faith. Why couldn't we drive it out? They come and ask Jesus. He replies in verse 20, because of your little faith. Now, it's not the first time that Jesus has said that about them, that they are of little faith. In fact, the only people Jesus has said it of are these guys, <laughs> these disciples. Hey, you remember they were, they were caught in a wild storm in, the, in a boat at sea and Jesus was asleep in the back. They woke him out, sure they were going to drown, and Jesus looked at them and said, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? And then with a word, he rebuked the wind and the sea, died down instantly. The waves were no rocking, no waves, still as you can get. In chapter 14, they're in another boat, in another storm, and Jesus is walking on water. Peter says to him, if it's really you, Jesus, command me to walk on the water with you. He takes a few steps and then loses heart and starts to sink and cries out to Jesus to save him, Matthew 14, 31. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him and turned to him and said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Later again, the disciples are in yet another boat. You'd think they'd start walking <laughs> the long way. <laughs> um, they realise that they have no food with them and they turn on each other. I guess they're hangry. Um, chapter 16 verse 18 aware of this Jesus said you of little faith why are you discussing among yourselves that you have no bread and he reminds them that he's just fed thousands of people not once but twice from virtually nothing what's the issue on every single one of those occasions is it that they haven't manifested their own destiny no it's that they don't really trust jesus to look after them and save them 
their faith isn't small because they haven't closed their eyes, breathed deeply and manifested their own realities as Oprah Winfrey believes. I think maybe she thinks she's a Jedi. No, their faith is so poor, so little, because it's not placed where it should be. It's not firmly fixed on the one with them, the one who's got their best interest at heart, the one who has told them that he is going to Jerusalem in order to die in order to save them from their greatest enemies, which no one has ever been able to save themselves from. I've come to save you from sin. I've come to save you from death. I've come to save you from judgment day. And he's going to repeat that in the very next verse, as we'll see next week, but I won't spoil that for David. We're going to Jerusalem so I can die for you and rise again. And they've failed again on this occasion for the very same reason, because they haven't put their faith in the right place. See, who were the disciples trusting to heal the man's son? Who did they think should have been able to do it? Themselves. We're authorised. We've got the power. We don't need Jesus anymore. It's just pride, isn't it? Let me illustrate it again with, uh, with space travel. I've had Star Wars on my mind all week. Uh, imagine three men in spacesuits and they're walking boldly like they do in the movies in slow motion. Uh, they're, they're strutting like they've got the right stuff. And then you notice where they're heading. They're heading to a couch in the middle of a field. They sit on it, they tip it over on its back so they're facing up to the sky and they stare confidently at the moon. Are they really going to get there? Not a chance. Compare that to someone who's nervous, scared, anxious and timidly approaches a rocket that's warming up on the pad and climbs in. The massive confidence of the three guys achieves nothing, whereas the other guy, even with tiny faith, gets to the moon. It's not about the size of the faith, but where your faith is placed. It might only be mustard-sized faith, but that doesn't matter because the rocket's going there. And that's the key to this promise. It's not about faith in yourself. It's not in your abilities. It's not in your prowess. Learning, it's not in your education, it's not in your past achievements, it's not in just that you trust hard enough, but it's faith in Jesus that really matters because he's the king and the Lord of glory. But what about this business of moving mountains? For truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could tell this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Well, should we be able to levitate or get to the moon or be disease-free so long as our faith isn't in ourselves, but our faith is in him? If our X-wing was stuck in the swamp, just believe in Jesus and out it'll come. Well, let's take the mountains first. This isn't the only time that Jesus uses the same example of moving mountains by faith. It's a repeated thing he said often. So it's not a random illustration because there just happens to be a mountain they've walked down 
and, you know, and if he'd just come out of the opera house, he would have used that instead. It's not that. What is it about mountains moving? Well, as it turns out, the Old Testament regularly talks about mountains moving. Several times it does. And every single time it does, it's a reference to the day of the Lord, the coming judgment of God, when God comes to save his people and judge the world. Now, our first reading was just was one example, a classic example, Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make a straight highway for, him, for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be leveled and the glory of the Lord will appear. It comes up again in Isaiah 49 verse 11. I'll leave you to look that one. Or in uh, Zechariah chapter 14, a different prophet. Another time, again about the day of the Lord, then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley, so that half the mountain will move to the north and half to the south. Who is it that moves mountains? God. And when is he going to do it? When he comes to break the world. When he comes to save his people when he comes to deliver those who will trust him and bring them into the promised land. And so what are the impossible things that we will be able to do if we will but trust him, listen to him, take him at his word? Well, there's all sorts of things that people have assumed were possible, impossible, that turned out to be possible, aren't there? There's heavier than air flight. No, they said that couldn't be done. Space travel, nanotechnology, drive through restaurants, making McDonald's taste good. They managed that somehow. No, <laughs> through human effort, persistence, ingenuity, time, money, people by their own power and strength and daring have braved scorn and done things that no one thought could be done. We can even literally move mountains that way with enough time, money and big trucks. Just drive over to the new airport and you can see it being done today. They're doing it now. But that's not what Jesus is talking about, is it? What are the things that are impossible without Jesus and without trusting him? Saving ourselves. We'll never be able to do that. That's what Jesus came to do for us. That's why he came. That's what he's calling us to do. Trust him as he goes to the cross to die in our place. Trust him to break the power of sin in our lives and the power of Satan on this world. Trust him to deliver us into the real promised land. And if you haven't trusted him for that, I want to say stop relying on yourself for that. Give it up. Your efforts, whatever they might be, your power, your family background, your religious achievements, they're not going to save you any more than that couch is going to get those astronauts to the moon. He's the only one that can get us there. But it's also a call to his disciples to trust him for the salvation of others. What did the boy and his father need? They didn't need some idiots who were too big for their boots trusting their new superpowers. They needed God to destroy Satan's grip. In fact, why did Jesus give the disciples the authority to cast out demons and heal disease back in chapter 10? 
was because at the end of chapter 9, the very sentence before, he had just seen the crowds, how helpless and harassed they were, like sheep without a shepherd, and he urged the disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And then he says, you go be the answer to your own prayer. Here's the power, here's the authority. That's the work God is doing, the impossible work of saving people for himself. And he'll even use us in doing it, if we'll trust him. And so, are you praying for God to raise up harvest, workers for the harvest expectantly? Are you praying for your friend, your neighbour, your husband, your child, your colleague, begging God to bring them to their senses and to come to Jesus? And are you stepping out in faith, this faith, faith in Jesus and getting into the conversations and becoming God's answer to your own prayer for them? Do you know what power you wield in the gospel? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for the salvation of anyone who believes. That's how God is going to work the impossible in their lives through you. Not in your strength, but in his. Jesus isn't promising you can be a Jedi. He's promising something even greater than that. Will you trust him? Father, we thank you that Satan is a defeated enemy. And that through the cross you have triumphed and you have brought what no one could bring. Life, peace, salvation, hope. Father, we pray that we will be those who trust you for those things, not ourselves. We pray that we wouldn't be caught up in pride thinking we can do everything. You know, we, sh we must be able to because... We're children of God, but help us to trust the Lord Jesus and help us to pray like nothing else mattered, particularly for the coming of your kingdom, for the salvation of others, that you might work in their lives, you might level these mountains of unbelief and you might bring them to salvation and life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.